this is a subject that uh, I got interested in about 30 years ago. Uh, Bruce mentioned that I was a bureau chief in San Francisco, and in the uh, mid-'70s, when Ronald Reagan was gearing up for the 76 uh, presidential race, uh, I started traveling around with him in 74, 75. Uh, and then in 74, uh, I had a friend named uh, Laurie Chickering, who lived in San Francisco, was involved with the uh, startup of the Institute for Contemporary Studies, which was one of the first, uh, one of the early uh, conservative think tanks. Uh, was based in San Francisco. The Heritage Foundation was started a year before, a year earlier in 73. Uh, and it occurred to me that there was suddenly this, this uh, sort of infrastructure, as they call it now, of uh, conservative organizations, think tanks, various uh, operations that were pumping out studies and books and reports, uh, and that uh, a lot of them were finding their way into the uh, into the campaigns. Um, so I wrote a story about it then, and it sort of followed as it going along. And I was, of course, interested in the uh, recent activity on the part of the Democrats. Uh, and it seems now that everyone is looking back on uh, this Republican structure and saying that this was uh, responsible for the uh, for the Republican resurgence. And one of the things I think we'll talk about today, I hope, uh, is the extent to which that is true. Uh, and uh, and later on, we'll see uh, how the uh, Democrats. Uh, hope to uh, create a similar resurgence uh, uh, with the, by creating the same sort of infrastructure. Uh, I will uh, just briefly introduce uh, our panel. Perhaps I could let Hillo, would you like to do it? No, that's fine. If you're, if you're okay. Uh, I'll wait for Eleanor Cliff, to, uh, an old colleague of mine from Newsweek who is, who is uh, on her way. Uh, John Duncan is a, a principal at Wexler & Walker, uh, Public Policy Associates for the past five years. Uh, from 2002-2004, he served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Legislative Affairs, uh, the Department's senior official in charge of Congressional Affairs. He played a key role in the passage of major parts of the President's legislative agenda, including tax cuts, the Patriot Act, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and the Sarbanes-Oxley reforms. Uh, it's a good chunk of work. Uh, I will try to be... There are sort of longer uh, introductions if you want to read more about these. Hillel Fradkin uh, is a, uh, appreciate Hillel coming in. Uh, Bob Hawkins, who was involved in the uh, founding of the Institute of Contemporary Studies, was going to share this panel and had to have a, some surgery done, and Hillel came in as a late-inning replacement. Uh, he's with the Hudson Institute as a senior fellow. Uh, he directs their Center on Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World. And prior to joining Hudson, Fradkin worked uh, as president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he directed the Islam and American Democracy Program. Uh, moving right along here, if I can. John Miller uh, is with the National Review. He's the magazine's national political reporter and a contributing editor to Philanthropy Magazine and the author most recently of A Gift of Freedom, How the John M. Olin Foundation Changed America. Finally, last but not least, Bill Shambra is the director of the Hudson Institute's Bradley Center for Philanthropy philanthropy and civic renewal, and prior to joining the Hudson Institute in January of 2003, uh, Shamber was director of the programs at the Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee. Uh, so welcome to all of you, and Hillel, I'll leave it to you. Okay. Um, thanks very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, even though the circumstances are uh, uh, Bob's unfortunate uh, need to, to have uh, uh, some attention to uh, 
uh, his uh, uh, problem with his foot. Um, I'll just, uh, the only thing I'm going to say is that um, uh, at, the, at the outset, uh, because I understand our, our speakers have a lot to say, is that um, uh, as, my, uh, as the introduction uh, indicated, I'm uh, more frequently involved in discussions these days about uh, Islam, uh, radical Islam, and the um, uh, uh, our struggles with uh, with those questions. Uh, uh, all that is to say is it's actually a pleasure to be here and discussing something else, uh, because I can honestly say that however these discussions proceed, uh, they are essentially a family quarrel, if there is a quarrel at all, and uh, that's a good deal nicer than some of the quarrels we happen to be in, uh, the ones in which are more typically the focus of my, my work. Um, I do have a a passing uh, connection with the subjects um, here, having worked um, uh, for the Bradley Foundation um, some years back, and uh, uh, if it occurs to me to say something uh, useful, or if I think I have something useful, I will contribute it. Um, I should. I thought I would just simply say at the outset the the topic of this panel is the Republican message machine, model or myth. And um, I suppose its unofficial uh, title is um, uh, the right-wing conspiracy, or the, um, <laughs> the vast right-wing conspiracy. Um, is that a model or a myth? Um, if it's a myth, it obviously can't be a model. Uh, but uh, I expect that our speakers today can uh, help us find out, uh, first of all, whether it's a myth, uh, and if there are certain mythological elements to the general understanding of it, uh, what those might be, and uh, then um, suggest in what ways it uh, either has been or should be a model for uh, political undertakings in this country. Uh, that is to say, the or more precisely, the interaction between intellectual endeavor and actual uh, uh, political uh, uh, activity. Um, I think we'll begin with John Miller. I should say to our panelists that since we, um, I think uh, the general format will be about uh, 10 minutes apiece, and then um, uh, after that we'll let you mix it up a, a bit and then turn to the audience for uh, questions and comments. John? All right. Thank you, Hillel. And thank you all for being here and for inviting me to come speak to you. I gather you're from mostly from, from California, so I guess I should say welcome to Washington, our national city of politics. You probably learned by now where the word politics comes from. It's from the, word, from, from the Greek originally, poly meaning many, and ticks meaning blood-sucking parasites. So uh, anyway, thank you for being here. A few months after the 2004 presidential election, former Democratic Senator Bill Bradley wrote a piece in the New York Times to explain why his party had lost. The problem, he said, wasn't the candidate, the fundraising, or even a missing ballot box in Ohio. It was something much deeper, and at its heart was a network of what he called conservative research centers. By contrast, wrote Bradley, there is no clearly identifiable funding base for Democratic policy organizations, and in the frantic campaign rush, there is no time for patients long-term development of new ideas or of new ways to sell old ideas. He called on liberals to mimic their conservative foes and invest heavily in think tanks. It will take at least a decade's commitment, he wrote, and it won't come cheap, but there, are, but, but there really is no other choice. 
wealthy liberals appear to have responded to his call. They've created the Democracy Alliance, an umbrella group of donors they think you'll be hearing more about later today. Meanwhile, conservatives have wondered about the effectiveness of their own vaunted infrastructure, especially with the federal government managed by Republicans, but nevertheless growing at an explosive rate with its prescription drug benefits and bridges to nowhere. Jack Kemp recently recommended a think tank revival movement, quote, so that scholars can have a safe haven in which to think and work and the freedom to generate new ideas. The bottom line is that people on both the left and the right are studying the conservative achievement of the last 30 years, such as it is, and coming to the conclusion that conservative think tanks had a lot to do with it. I believe that's basically correct, though not always for the reasons attributed to it, especially by liberals. First, a simple question, what are think tanks? They've been called universities without students, places where scholars can focus on their work, uh, their scholarship. Instead of having students who need instruction, they have interns who fetch coffee. Some think, some, some think tanks offer varieties of membership to their financial contributors, but they aren't interest groups that have constituencies in the traditional sense. Rather than shaping public policy through elections or lobbying, they try to do it through the power of the ideas they generate and promote. As Albert Keith Whitaker has written, the first think tank was a joke, literally. In The Clouds, the, Greek, the ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes portrayed Socrates as a guy who taught young men to become thieves, to hold the law in contempt, and to get ahead in life by making the weaker argument the stronger. Today we call such places law schools, but, <laughs> but Aristophanes, Aristophanes labeled them thinkeries. Modern thinkeries were born a century ago, and what the Carnegie Endowment and the, Bro and, and the Brookings Institution shared was a, in, in common was a progressive era of faith in the ability of technicians to solve economic and social problems. After the Second World War, they were joined by organizations such as the Rand Corporation that contracted with the federal government to study problems. The, third, the, 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 the term think tank comes from this period. It's, it's, it's a World War II term. It's a place where officers gathered to... Uh, to discuss strategy. During the 60s and 70s, liberalism embraced something called advocacy philanthropy, a concept pioneered by McGeorge Bundy of the Ford Foundation. Like-minded foundations spawned batches of issue-oriented groups that weren't think tanks, but which nevertheless pushed for certain public policy goals, often through litigation. By one measure, these organizations were remarkably successful. They gave birth to new environmental regulations, affirmative action and racial preferences, bilingual education, public broadcasting, and large expansions of the welfare state. By another measure, they went too far. They alienated voters who came to be known as Reagan Democrats, setting the table for the electoral rise of the conservative movement. Whatever their legacy, the philanthropy that underwrote them left behind a collection of groups, from mall deaf to women's studies programs on campus, that remain powerful forces in politics, law, and culture. When Bill Bradley complains about liberalism's failure to create a network of think tanks, he must remember that it hasn't been for a lack of resources. The left, in fact, has had hundreds of millions of dollars at its disposal. Until recently, the Ford Foundation owned America's biggest philanthropic endowment. Andrew Rich has calculated that the country's 15 biggest foundations spent more than $136 million on public policy institutes in 2002. Very little of this money found its way to conservatives, who instead had to rely on a dozen other foundations to provide less than $30 million that same year. 
These trends toward advocacy in the 60s and 70s gave rise to a third wave of think tanks, more aggressive, more media savvy, and more involved in the daily grind of public policy than, other, than, than their forebears. They were different in other ways as well. Many of them were explicitly conservative, or at least right of center, in their outlook. Because of this newfangled orientation, some commentators have described these groups as advocacy or ideological think tanks. And there's truth in these labels, but also a fundamental confusion, because they tend to assume a golden age of thinkery, when all the experts were objective, all the wonks were fair and balanced, and all the white papers were above average. In reality, this new breed of think tank revolted against the profound and unstated biases of its predecessors. These predecessors, in keeping with their progressive roots, often prescribed a large role for government in addressing the challenges of poverty, health, and education, much larger than the emerging conservative movement considered appropriate or effective. The best way to understand how think tanks influence public policy may be, may, may be to look at one of them, the Heritage Foundation, which is perhaps the most iconic example of a third-wave think tank. Anybody can learn from its experience, even if he doesn't agree, for the conservatism of the Heritage Foundation. In the early 70s, a small group of conservatives looked at the political scene and made an assessment that was not wholly different from Bill Bradley's of, 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 of 2005. They saw a president who was a Republican but not a close ally, and a Congress that seemed permanently controlled by Democrats. Moreover, conservatives could not count on the intellectual support of a big, venerable, and respected think tank, such as the Brookings Institution. The universities were even further off limits as sources of intellectual ferment, a problem, I might add, which has only worsened since then. At the time, beer magnate Joseph Coors was looking for creative ways to promote conservative policies. In 1972, he wrote a check for $250,000 that made possible the establishment of the Heritage Foundation. This philanthropic seed money is possibly the most consequential that has ever been spent in the world of public policy. Today, Heritage has a bu budget of $35 million and a staff of more than 200 people. It, they, they have expertise in, in all sorts of fields, from defense policy to international trade to the federal budget, you name it. From the start, Heritage was a think tank innovator in several important ways. Most obviously, it was explicitly conservative. Earlier think tanks had not worn their principles and their politics on their sleeves the way Heritage did. Moreover, Heritage devoted itself to serving the needs of Congress. It has always maintained an office on Capitol Hill rather than a mile or two away in downtown D.C. or in some other city entirely, and it began to specialize in quick critiques of proposed legislation. Just This was part of its overall marketing strategy. Just as Coors became the first American beverage company to sell six packs of beer and aluminum cans, Heritage became the first think tank to flood Congress with eight-page backgrounders on the topics of the day. Heritage took its biggest step toward follow, uh, forward following the presidential election of, of Ronald Reagan in 1980 with the publication of Mandate for Leadership, uh, a, a massive uh, and detailed set of policy recommendations for the new administration. It was like as big as a phone book, and that was the abridged version. The, the idea for it had arisen at a board meeting a year earlier, and Heritage decided to make a substantial investment in the project, an investment that largely would have been lost if Jimmy Carter had been re-elected. The gamble paid off, and Mandate for Leadership detailed more than 2,000 specific policy proposals on a wide range of issues, and some of its authors then, then gained uh, jobs in, in, in the Reagan administration. Bill, Bill Bennett, for example, is one of these, one of these figures. The, the, the 1980 edition 
of Mandate for Leadership became one of the most influential publications ever issued by a think tank. A testimony to its influence is the fact that manuals providing advice for an incoming administration or a new Congress now comprise a whole subgenre of think tank literature. This has been copied over and over again. A favorite saying of conservatives who inhabit think tanks is Richard Weaver's old aphorism, ideas have consequences. Yet it is notoriously difficult to determine which ideas have consequences and what role think tanks play in making them consequential. There's no so shortage of ways to measure the performance of an individual think tank. How many times have newspapers quoted it? How many times have its experts appeared before Congress? Uh, how often have they been on television? The answers to these questions surely measure something though it isn't necessarily their actual influence. A think tank can be quoted a thousand times on why a particular piece of legislation is worth passing, but if lawmakers ultimately fail to pass it, then all the attention arguably came, came to naught, or maybe it didn't if an early, early, fa or if an early failure paves the way for a, a later success. Yet it is by no means impossible to draw a few broad lessons from, from recent experience. First, the most effective think tanks possess a clear sense of purpose. Second, they focus not only on the creation of, of ideas, but also on the marketing of them, so that their audience of opinion leaders and decision makers comes into contact with them. Third, success requires patience, as well as long-term commitment that is durable enough to survive perceived setbacks, especially electoral ones. Finally, the success of a think tank ultimately comes down to the quality of its ideas. The mechanical questions of how think tanks are funded, how they organize themselves, and how they promote their products are very important, but they aren't the most important thing. Last year, at a dinner honoring the John M. Olin Foundation, a sponsor of many conservative thinkeries, its longtime director, Jim Pearson, told a story about Ron Turcott, the jockey who, won the, who, who rode the horse that won the Triple Crown in 1973. After he had won the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths, everyone wanted to ask him a simple question. What was your secret? I didn't need a secret, replied Turcott. I had secretariat. <laughs> so what was the secret of the John M. Olin Foundation? Well, said Pearson, we had Bill Buckley, Irving Crystal, Norman Pithoritz, Michael Novak, Hilton Kramer, Roger Kimball, Heather McDonald, Robbie George, Milton Friedman and the market economists, the law and economic scholars, Alan Bloom, Harvey Mansfield, the followers of Leo Strauss, Samuel Huntington, Elliot Cohen, and others in foreign policy, institutions like the Heritage Foundation, the Hoover Institution, the Manhattan Institute, and the American Enterprise Institute, and publications from commentary to the public interest to the new criterion. The list could go on, unquote. More important than the list, of course, were the ideas these people and institutions generated, ideas that definitely had consequences. Thanks. Thanks very much, John. Um, we'll next hear from John Duncan. Thank you. Uh, not a lot is durable in politics. And what is most durable are ideas. And what's least durable are messages that don't point to ideas. Ideas fit a time and place, and part of the art of politics is to find and champion ideas that are right for your time and your place. Uh, in a sense, ideas are to politics what clothes are to fashion. Ideas are a factor in a politician's appearance. And in the public realm, it's through their ideas that politicians are seen, heard, talked about, and approved. It's one thing for individuals to have ideas, but when ideas belong to parties, things get a little dicier, 
as anyone who has ever worked on a party platform uh, can attest. When I first came to work on Capitol Hill in 1975, uh, Republicans were basically Democrats' light. Now, that may be an unfair characterization, but that's how I saw it. Democrats had the ideas, they had the power, they had the momentum. And Republicans either opposed the Democrats' agenda or supported watered-down versions of Democratic proposals with the hope of limiting damage. But over the course of the next 30 years, the Republican Party went from a message of no, don't change to a party whose message was yes, change, and here's how. And the person I most associate with starting the Republican Revolution in Ideas was Jude Winiski with his notion of supply-side economics. Ideas don't come much bigger than his, and when put into play by Kamparoff and Reagan, it became the central Republican idea of the 1981 tax cuts. Ideas continued to ferment in the 80s, and in 1994, a number were pulled together in the contract with America. Now, there's some argument about whether the contract with America was all that decisive a document. But it's clear that at least one big idea caught on, that was welfare reform. The notion that welfare should lead to work and not dependence was a very powerful idea. And in 1996, welfare reform became law. In retrospect, it's striking to note that health care was absent from the contract. But it came later as Republicans sought to introduce competition into the Medicaid, Medicare program as a means of improving care and driving down costs. And the successful introduction of a prescription drug benefit into the Medicare program through competing private sector plans is a significant accomplishment culminating decades of work. The last big idea I'll mention in my sketchy survey is the notion of moving away from a social policy of income maintenance to one of asset ownership. Individual retirement accounts, the Roth IRA, the Roth 401k, all have come into being over the last 30 years. And a retirement account will, I think, in all likelihood someday, become associated with Social Security. Now, I don't want my remarks to sound like over the last 30 years it's been a contest where only Republicans have scored points. That, of course, is not true. Democrats have been part of these achievements. But it was the Republicans who drove the agenda largely through the power of their ideas. The broader point here is that ideas are a way a party stays on offense. And if you're not on offense, you're on defense. And if you're on defense, you're losing. Now, if it's true that politicians need ideas, it's also true that ideas need politicians. Ideas are the product of creative minds grappling with the problems of the day, but ideas need to get from the mind to the world, from those who think to those who act. And it's through politicians, people skilled in the activities of freedom, that ideas become a reality in the world. And it's in the public realm that ideas grow in value as they're explained, assessed, improved, and otherwise prepared for their journey in the world. Ideas rarely enter the world without a struggle, and we all know why. The new is resisted by the old and must be fought for, and it's in the public realm that that fight takes place. And a party cannot advance its ideas successfully if it isn't organized and disciplined. And one of the things that surprised many observers, myself included, is how disciplined and organized the Republican Party has become. But being organized and disciplined is no substitute for ideas because it's ideas that provide you direction and purpose. And parties that think they're more important than their ideas are heading for trouble. 
We frequently hear the expression that all politics is local. I prefer a different formulation. All politics is national and only becomes local when there's an absence of compelling ideas on the national scene. Let me close by saying what I hope is obvious. No one political party has a monopoly on ideas, and we know the reason why. Ideas are a product of the human mind and not a political organization. Our country is close to 300 million strong, educated and wired. That's a lot of creative brain power. And today we tap the mental reservoir of our nation's brain power through think tanks and academic institutions. The future may be different as emerging participatory web technologies begin to dramatically alter how ideas are harvested, developed, and put into the public space. The strain of terrorism, immigrant absorption, baby boom retirements, along with all the other adjustments our nation will have to make to fit into the global economy, all pose huge challenge for our political leaders. We'll need more ideas than ever before. The title of this panel is Republican Message Machine, Model or Myth? Well, I think we know the answer. Idea-generating organizations and their message machines on the outside, connected to disciplined and skilled political organizations on the inside, is the model, and it's likely to remain the model, regardless of what happens in November. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. <clears throat> uh, next, we'll hear from um, Bill Shabra of um, the Hudson Institute. Thank you. Hello. Uh, anyone interested in the rise of the conservative message machine will soon become acquainted with a remarkable group of public intellectuals. They were all members of the privileged elite, tightly interconnected through personal background and professional association. Uh, they were all ardent Republicans. They not only fundamentally redefined America's ideas about public policy, but they also established their own research institutions, media outlets, and lobbying groups to carry their new ideas to the American people, which they did with resounding success. They were amply backed by major foundations whose managers moved freely back and forth between leadership posts in government and corporate life. Eldon Eisenach, one of the foremost chroniclers of these savvy policy entrepreneurs, notes that, quote, these intellectuals who created ideas, institutions, audiences, networks, publicity techniques, and opinion-shaping organs were a new and politically emergent clerisy, national public moralists in thought, purpose, and deed. For more than a generation, they went from victory to victory. Now, I'm sure at least some of you, not easily taken in by this shop-worn journalistic technique, have guessed by now that I am not, in fact, talking about the conservative intellectual apparatus of the 21st century, uh, but rather the progressive uh, intellectual apparatus of the early uh, 20th century. This introduction of progressivism is more than a cheap trick, though. Uh, it does raise for us a larger question. Namely, are any of these supposedly revolutionary techniques and devices practiced by today's policy community really new or revolutionary? Or were they not, in fact, invented and introduced uh, to great effect by the left uh, over a century ago? Which points to another question. Is it not possible that modern conservative intellectual organizing was intended precisely as a response uh, to the manifold successes of that earlier progressive intellectual apparatus. To answer my own questions, no, today's conservatives have come up with nothing new. Uh, and yes, 
uh, conservative intellectual organizing was indeed a response to the context it faced in the 60s and 70s, which was a policy landscape completely dominated by progressive institutions that had been funded for six decades by the large progressive foundations. Uh, what do I mean by this? And here I apologize, I'm going to touch on some of the same points uh, that uh, Mr. Miller talked about. But the American policy landscape for much of the 20th century had been profoundly shaped by the establishment of those large modern foundations at the beginning of the 20th century. Modern foundations rose at the same time as, and indeed reflected, uh, the progressive movement at the beginning of the 20th century. Progressives believed that industrial peace depended on the transfer of political power away from everyday citizens and their chaotic, parochial, benighted local organizations uh, often steeped in foolish religious mythology. Power should instead be put into the hands of centralized, professionally credentialed experts trained in the new sciences of social control. The first large foundations, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Russell Sage, uh, later joined by the Ford Foundation, eagerly bought into this idea that the new social sciences offered an indisputably objective and rational way to order public affairs and to deal with the causes, not the symptoms, of social disorder. As a Rockefeller <coughs> mission statement put it in the 1920s, uh, that foundation's funding was designed to, quote, increase the body of knowledge which in the hands of competent social technicians may be expected in time to result in, in uh, substantial social control, social control being the, the telling point. Hence, they bankrolled institutions that would ensure the triumph of modern expertise over popular ignorance. Modern research universities like the University of Chicago, the first think tanks like Brookings, scholarly journals, uh, planning and coordinating organizations like National Bureau of Economic Research and the Social Science Research Council. Such institutions were to design, demonstrate, and pass on to the state, the government, uh, for full funding uh, programs that would get at the heart of social pathologies. The war on poverty uh, in the mid-60s, and in particular the Community Action Program, epitomized this approach to social problems and, uh, and illuminated its questionable democratic tendencies. Uh, as the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan described it in Maximum Feasible Misunderstanding, the war on poverty went astray because, as he put it, government did not know what it was doing. Uh, it had a theory, or rather a set of theories, nothing more, end quote. The central theory, Cloward and Olin's thesis of opportunity structure, uh, had been the basis for the Ford Foundation's gray area demonstrations, uh, but it had been ha hardly been proven or even to uh, command widespread support before it was rushed to the front uh, as the basis for President Johnson's community action agenda. Now, how a very shaky and unpopular and unproven social science hypothesis could be so hastily drafted into public service uh, Moynihan argues, can be explained by what he described as the professionalization uh, of reform. By the 60s, in his account, the growth of social science expertise, the professionalization of the middle class with jobs based on that expertise, and the emergence of foundations eager to fund social science all ensured that political reform was no longer driven by popular democratic movements, but rather by credentialed experts. 
when an untested abstract theory was artificially imposed on the urban political scene by such presumptuous detached experts, Moynihan's account suggests, small wonder that the program <coughs> rapidly became ensnared in conflict and controversy. Uh, yet this is precisely where progressive philanthropy had been so keen to bring us. The profoundly undemocratic notion that reform should be driven by foundation-subsidized social science experts rather than by self-governing citizens informed and consequently complicated many of the great society's efforts to construct and expand government programs in the 60s. Uh, this indictment uh, that professionalized reforms presuppositions are arrogant, elitist, and undemocratic is thought by many on the left today to be an immensely uh, clever public relations gimmick uh, concocted by conservative foundations during the 80s and 90s uh, to undermine confidence in government. In point of fact, uh, it issued first in the 1960s from the new left in its assault on the massive, distant, alienating structures of, of American technocracy. Uh, their alternative was participatory democracy, a return of political authority uh, to smaller, decentralized, self-governing communities such as were modeled in their own modes of, of communal organization. Somewhat later, uh, the progressive vision of social control was challenged in, in somewhat similar terms, though from the opposite end of the political spectrum, by a group of intellectuals who came to be known as the neoconservatives. In his introduction to Reflections of a Neoconservative, Irving Kristol traced progressive hubris to, to its origins in the French Revolution, noting that modern heirs of that revolution affirmed that the state, in the hands of the right men and following the correct policies, could solve through central planning the economic problems of society and its other social ills. Neoconservatives, he argued, do not believe that the public interest can be rationally defined at a moment in time by any kind of expert or consortium of experts, uh, but rather that it would emerge from, as he put it, the process of self-government in all relevant institutions, government at all levels, but also local school boards, religious congregations, professional organizations, and so forth. Uh, Peter Berger and Richard John Newhouse's To Empower People expanded this critique of top-down centralized uh, uh, public policy, calling instead for a transfer of authority back to self-governing, decentralized, mediating structures like family, neighborhood, church, and voluntary association uh, to deliver social services. As conservative funders like the John M. Olin, Scaife, and Bradley Foundations began to emerge in the, the 80s and 90s, they took their bearings from this indictment of anti-democratic, centralized, bureaucratic rationalization, uh, rationalism, funding both scholarship that made the intellectual critique, as well as practical programs that reflected the determination to return authority to everyday citizens organized within their own self-governing institutions. At the Bradley Foundation, where Halal and I worked for, for a number of years, this came to be known as the new citizenship agenda. So the means, if the means that conservative foundations adopted are, and think tanks are not new, uh, the question is what does distinguish uh, the conservative think tanks? And I think it's an understanding of the ends, what they're trying to accomplish, what their understanding of America is. Uh, maybe we can get to that shortly. But let me ask you to focus on this question as you go forward today try to lift your vision above the discussion of the means and the techniques. We can go over how think tanks are organized and foundations fund in this way or that way and the other things. 
The question is, does the left, in its new effort to sort of establish a set of think tanks, new think tanks, it's asking for a massive do-over, incidentally. It's sort of saying all those progressive uh, institutions that we had established for the 20th century, they don't count. We need, we need now to start uh, imitating conservatives with new think tanks, new organizations. Uh, but as they try to form those organizations, the question is, are they going to figure out what the central idea of the American Republic is that it should serve? Conservatives have a clear understanding of that idea. Uh, it may not be popular with a lot of folks on the left, obviously, but it's a clear idea. And the question is, what is that coherent, overriding understanding of the American political order that the left, the, the, the new apparatus on the left uh, may or may not offer? Thanks very much, Bill. Um, uh, and next and our final speaker is Eleanor Clift. Um, well, I come at this from a little different perspective. I'm a career journalist, and um, you know, in, in participating in a panel on the Republican message-making machine, I'm I'm uh, looking uh, uh, from the outside, and I'm thinking, you know, in my memory here in Washington, I came to Washington covering Jimmy Carter, who as you all know, served four years and was just defeated by uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. And that really, I think, began the ascendancy of the Republican message-making machine, if you, if you will. I, I look at Republicans as a lot uh, bolder in their approach. Uh, risk-takers, certainly uh, President Bush and Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld are risk-takers if you look at the way they uh, waged war and, and uh, have... have um, conducted public policy in this administration really without including certainly the other political party and excluding our allies to much to 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 a great extent i think the losses of um, al gore and uh, john kerry i think made the democrats more timid uh, and uh, 9 11 of course uh, really put the democrats on the defensive because they're uh, patriotism would be questioned if they, you know, chose to uh, challenge. And so I think, you know, timidity has marked uh, the Democrats in recent years, and a um, a boldness and a risk taking has marked the Republican agenda. Although I would argue uh, not with uh, positive uh, outcomes. Um, I think the Republicans have are, are um, from the uh, progressive point of view are a lot more willing to, uh, to stretch the truth in order to market their uh, ideas and their programs. And I go back to a Sunday New York Times Magazine piece. It was about a year and a half ago. It was by Ron Suskind. And uh, he quoted administration officials saying, you know, we create our own reality. Uh, you guys, meaning the press, you're just, you, you just react and you react to what we do. We set the agenda. We create the reality. And I think you saw that... Uh, specifically, certainly, in the marketing and the selling of a war. And I think a lot of this is now crumbling. Um, and uh, having watched the president's press conference yesterday, I thought there was a certain uh, hyper-desperation uh, about it as he kept repeating his uh, same mes message that, you know, a lot, there's, the stakes are high, uh, the enemy is dangerous, and, you know, we all know that. It's, um, it's how you handle um, the threat uh, that is being... Uh, Questioned, and so I think you know the uh, Republicans could well be on the verge of losing their majority in one house and perhaps uh, both houses. Um, and 
Just to um, the, the notion of um, crediting the contract with America with welfare reform when it wasn't even in the contract. I remember Bill Clinton campaigning in 1992 on let's end welfare as we know it. Maybe it was an idea he borrowed from the Republicans, but certainly um, that was not that did not spring up from uh, Newt Gingrich uh, wholly. Um, uh, second, I think, again, I'm looking at this in, 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 in the contemporary real time here. I look at a party that has uh, used uh, homophobia to get votes. And I was trying to think, as I, I made a, some notes before I came here, and I put homophobia, and I wrote, uh, is there any issue comparable on the Democratic side? I'm not judging. I am just, I can't really think of one. Um, and um, I hear a lot of Democrats say, they wish they had a Karl Rove. Um, there is this sense that, Republic, that uh, Democrats are not willing to be as ruthless as, uh, as Republicans. And I like to quote Mark Shields, who is a commentator on the Jim Lehrer show. He says, if it's true, as the Bible says, that the, uh, that the meek shall inherit the earth, the Democrats will be landowners. <laughs> so it always gets a laugh. <laughs> um, so... Um, I think the, the, the party's position um, in exploiting sort of um, fears about uh, homosexuality is now, of course, coming back uh, to haunt it as the, um, as the Foley uh, scandal has, has exploded and turned into a leadership crisis on, on Capitol Hill. And uh, so um, I, I, if anybody can think of the Democrats using an issue uh, similarly, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear it because I really couldn't think of one. Uh, lastly, uh, when I think of structures, I think a lot of the new media that is available today, and I think you know the Republicans have done a much better job uh, using the new media. From from Rush Limbaugh uh, would be a classic example. In 1994, when um, the Republicans won the Congress, they they swore in Rush Limbaugh and Michael Reagan, who's also a conservative. Uh, talk show host as honorary members of Congress. And Tony Blankley, who is a friend and a, a colleague on the McLaughlin Group and is the editorial page editor of the Washington Times, has said that he, he doesn't think that the Republicans could have won the majority in 94 if it wasn't for Rush Limbaugh. Uh, so I think that um, there's now, a, the, the internet of course has now grown up since, since then and I think the, the Democrats are being more combative in trying to use the, uh, the internet. Um, but uh, President Clinton, I think, said it best. He said, you know, all po politics, this is, this is all a head game. And um, he thinks that, you know, Republicans have been better at the head game uh, than, than Democrats. Now, I agree it's about ideas, and, uh, but I don't think, uh, I, I think the big challenges that face the country don't belong to either party. Before I came here, I was at um, a press conference for the League of Conservation Voters, and they put out their environmental scorecard for 06, you know, rating every member of Congress and the parties on environmental issues. It's a pretty striking difference. I mean, most of the uh, pro-environment people are in the Democratic Party, but there are some strong exceptions in the, in the Republican Party. Uh, Lincoln Chafee, Chris Shays, Sherry Bowler, who's, who's retiring. And this group has endorsed Lincoln Chafee and has endorsed Chris Shays, even though um, it would be in their larger interest if the Democrats took over because the party as a whole is more uh, uh, friendly. But um, the president of the group said, we want to we reward our friends, we want to find new champions, and 
Their goal is uh, to turn the 08 presidential contest into a competition as to who has the most serious plan to combat global warming. And uh, John McCain certainly is a maverick within the Republican Party for um, uh, taking this issue uh, seriously. I'm not really sure about the positions of the other Republicans in the field. But I think that's a worthy, a worthy goal and doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, partisan, a partisan goal. And so I think um, coming up with uh, serious approaches to the, to the issues that we really face, not just you know, slogans to package them, um, is, is really what politics uh, ought to be about, but so much of it is about the sloganeering. And uh, I think the country is fed up. I think they're disgusted with both parties, and um, uh, the, the situation is really ripe for a third party, but the problem with that is our, our system is so stacked against it. You have to have a, the perfect personality, a dynamic personality, somebody who can self-fund or raise a lot of money and, and a single compelling idea that really catches on. And we came, clo we kind of came close to that with Ross Perot. And um, I think Ross Perot, more than all of these think tanks, created uh, the impetus for the balanced budget. Um, he was the one who really put that issue on the table. So we need another Ross Perot <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, or somebody like that uh, to shake up our political uh, life. Thank you. It, it may be helpful uh, to get off the um, big scope of ideas and down to some very narrow ideas because I think ideas are put into play that are both large and small. And I know when I uh, was uh, responsible for uh, providing advice to a senator from Delaware, uh, we had a unique political problem because there was a relatively small Republican base and elections required that he be successful with independent voters. And we looked to ideas as a way of, um, of um, managing our case <clears throat> off the base. And so Delaware is a state that has a very high interest in environmental matters. So we always wanted to have an environmental idea in play, and the best idea would be an idea that no one else had already claimed, <laughs> so it could be yours. So you'd press forward with your staffs to try to say, look, it, we want, uh, we, we hired uh, a highly qualified environmentalist on our staff, and we basically said, we want ideas for our boss that will put us out front and will be recognized and seen for our ability to be pr promoting something. But it doesn't do us a lot of good if the idea has already been claimed by a bunch of other folks. So that's where, that, where things became kind of tough. But then to add a little more complications, uh, we had two automobile plants in the state. So uh, at that time, there was a lot of concern about e exhaust emissions, things like that. But uh, we had real political problems if we started moving in that arena because uh, we had the highest percentage of automobile workers. We had a higher percentage than Michigan did because we were a small state and we had two plants. So. Uh, the challenge for us always was try to find something that we could use, and one of the ideas that we ultimately grabbed a hold of, oh, and by the way, the other nice thing is, is you usually want to find an idea that affects someone else's district, <laughs> so you don't <laughs> suffer the consequences on your own. We got very involved in the idea of uh, twinning the Arctic Refuge uh, a park area there up in Alaska with the, its comparable Canadian park. And uh, uh, that uh, was an idea that we grabbed a hold of. Nobody else had had it at the time, and that became an initiative for us. 
Uh, at that time, there was a lot of concern about uh, how women might be voting. And so we always wanted to see if we could reach out and find an idea that would be appealing to women's groups. Uh, and so you kind of get initiative going there. And so uh, the, these weren't, I don't want to leave the impression, part of the discussion leaves the impression that this is big sort of machinery outside or around here in Washington that stokes up all these ideas and kind of feeds them into this furnace uh, called uh, Capitol Hill. Um, most of the ideas that we imported were basically designed to help uh, the, the senator's political strategy for dealing with the political climate in our state. Now, one of the things I've observed happening over the years that I was in the business is that gradually, at the beginning, what you thought about was your boss, your elect, the person you work for. And, po and politicians, at least senators, were kind of like feudal armies that kind of marched across the political landscape, and we cared about ourselves. And maybe we'd accept help from the Delaware Republican Party, but for the most part, all we wanted to do was get us money and then stay away from us for any other purpose. <laughs> and maybe we'd align ourselves with another Republican, maybe we'd align ourselves with a Democrat, but we were basically a feudal army. But now that's all started to change now. And, and um, uh, towards the last years that we were in business, all of a sudden, if you're chairman of the finance committee, uh, you just don't do what the finance committee wants to do. You now all of a sudden have to go back and you have to account to your uh, Republican conference about the kind of legislation that's coming out of your committee. And so what we've seen happening now is that ideas have kind of moved out of the... Uh, uh, of the scope of the individual member and are now becoming more and more enshrined in the party apparatus and then enforced down the line through the uh, internal party equipment. Now, it's my belief that this is, well, this is certainly what's happened to the Republican side. I think there's no doubt about that. It's my suspicion that this is willing to happen on the Democratic side if they take over power, they will face, in many respects, the same difficulties Republicans faced, and they will start to shape their uh, arrangements very similar to the Republicans, and that we're essentially moving into kind of a new structure on the Hill, and I think it may reflect, it may be a lot of people who know this, uh, what's going on in the country kind of sociologically better than I do, but I think part of it reflects the fact that the country is becoming, because of all the internal migration, the differences between the north and the south and the east and the west, and uh, the, what you see is that there are more and more the United States is becoming very similar in many ways, and I think that's now what's driving uh, the movement of issues away from individual members up into party apparatus, and uh, I think we're going to be living with it for a while, and uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily see it as a bad development. Uh, but I certainly don't see it as anything you could change. And so uh, we all need to find uh, ways to um, kind of deal with this. And as I uh, indicated briefly in my remarks, I think the big change is going to come with these uh, participatory uh, Web 2.0 technologies that are coming in line that probably all of you out there are more familiar with than I am. And, and the big issue, the business communities are starting to grapple with these. And I think a lot of people are going to be watching to see how the business community does with these technologies. And if they are able to find ways to, to uh, have their employees collaborate on idea development in a highly unstructured way, those ideas may begin to gravitate into the public realm and the political side, and we may see a, a very interesting transformation of how ideas move from people's minds to uh, the political 
organizations and the political apparatuses that, that drive policy in the city. So with that, I'll stop talking there and see if that uh, is something that people want to react to. Just quickly, um, constitutionally, I just don't see Nancy Pelosi, if she becomes the speaker, being able to run the Democratic caucus the way Tom DeLay did the Republicans, and he was really the enforcer. I think that the spotlight is now on Congress, and I don't see the Democrats getting away with holding up out votes for three and four hours until they get the votes they need. And, sure. and I also think, uh, you know, Democrats are more quarrelsome. Uh, they are going to be less willing mm -hmm. to take the party line. And they're also more diverse than they're given mm -hmm. credit for. I and mean, it is not really an all-left uh, right. caucus right. by any mm -hmm. means. And uh, I must say, I think uh, Pelosi has done a good job, one, keeping herself fairly uh, invisible during mm -hmm. this period, so she's not such a good target for the mm -hmm. other side. And two, you don't see any of the would-be chairmen like John Conyers or Elsie Hastings or Henry Waxman out there talking about the investigations they're going to hold, <laughs> uh, which is, again, taking a card away from, from, mm -hmm. from the other side in this right. final three and, weeks. Yeah, it was interesting yeah. to me that uh, Charlie Rangel came out. You know, couldn't spoke very, he couldn't yeah. resist. And, and I thought, oh, he's going to learn uh, yeah, pretty soon. He, she put him back because, in the box. Because uh, here, here you have a committee chairman who basically comes out and says, hey, here's what we're going to do if we're chairman. Well, you know, my boss did that for a while and all of a sudden started to learn that, wait a minute, um, you don't go out and make those pronouncements until you've worked your way through uh, your leadership. And, uh, and I think one of the really interesting things to watch, uh, and I know you'll do a better job of it than I will, is, uh, is seeing if the Democrats do take control. Uh, what will be really interesting is to see uh, how, how do they start grappling with this internal issue of uh, idea development and message control and discipline so that they project uh, the kind of image that, that they want to project and makes sense to everybody. And I think you're right. They are very diverse. But, you know, Republicans had a little... One of the things you've seen on the Republican side has been a decline of diversity on the Republican right. side. And, um, uh, and, that, and that's something that one can lament, but it's a fact. It's a reality. And uh, I'll be curious to see, you know, whether we see similar kinds of things happen on the Democratic side. If it does happen... Then uh, we will have we will be operating under a very new model, and uh, if it doesn't happen, then uh, maybe everything that the Republicans did will just be seen as as kind of a of a one-time development, uh, maybe an aberration, and things will go back to to some kind of prior prior state. I kind of have the feeling that that will not be the case; that we will see. A yeah, very, I think a the Democrats will try Democratic to emulate yeah. a lot of the discipline, yeah. but they're not going to be as successful. Right. <laughs> That's what I think. Well, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, um, Dick Morris, who I like to keep track of a little bit, was writing in a recent column on, on Bill Frist that he described the Republican as kind of like a Prussian army that, that marches in lockstep over the battlefield uh, and over the landmines and everything just to clear the field. And uh, there is, it has been surprising to see the way the discipline has been uh, enforced. And, uh, and that's a key thing for everybody to watch, uh, depending upon what the results are in November.